Good morning. That was a little bit better. Uh, my name is Justin Craig. I'm the family minister here at the church. And uh, this morning we're continuing our series called Jesus Died For. Now about a year ago, my wife and I uh, bought our first house here in Champaign. We thought it was a little surprising that I hadn't been fired yet, so we thought we'd dig down some roots and, and just buy a house. And so we, we, uh, we, we, we bought this house, and it was, the timing was a little off. Um, it was the week before Easter, and you know, pastoral ministry staff people, we don't have anything going on leading up to Easter. I mean, there's really nothing happening at the church, and it's not a busy time of the year for us at all. But we moved in anyway, and uh, it, was, it was awesome. And uh, we, we've painted just about every, every wall in our house. We've, we've done some tile work in the kitchen. I say we, I mean other people. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we did some carpet. Uh, we wrote checks for, you know. And, you know, we had some carpet put in, and we've, we've done a lot of improvements. We got some more improvements we want to make because it's, it's a house, right? It's not ever done. And I like to think that I'm, I'm handy to a certain extent. I mean, I've got all the tools that... that qualifies right I like watching the home improvement shows fixer upper man who doesn't like fixer upper right I mean Chip Gaines is my hero he makes me want to eat a ham sandwich I love it it's great but I love watching these shows it makes me believe in myself that I can remodel that I can rework that I can redo something but I can't and I think that God plays a little funny joke on me I think God wired me to work better when I'm frustrated Maybe some of you guys can relate to that. You see, I get about halfway through a project, I get really frustrated, and then some really good work comes out. It's awesome. And last year, we decided we wanted to give our downstairs bathroom a, a facelift, you know, a little cosmetic paint on the wall, that kind of stuff. Well, we got to the point of that. We were painting, and I love the instant gratification that paint is in, like, changing a room. It's just wonderful, right? I mean, you paint it a color, it's like, that looks awesome, you know? And it's like, this is so great. But we got down there, we're painting, and I'm like, you know... I think we could use some new baseboards in the bathroom. I think that would be just fine. And, and I think, I think we, you know, we got a chair railing that kind of goes around the bathroom, kind of separates the wall a little bit. The textures of the walls are different and everything. And so I was like, let's redo that too. And so we're, now I've, I've worked with a miter saw before. I got all my fingers, so I'm not terrible at it. And I, you know, we're working through that. I'm, I'm cutting, you know, about seven or eight extra times because I cut them wrong and everything. But I get the baseboards down, and then I'm working on the last piece of molding in the bathroom. Last piece of molding. I got one nail in down here. I've got one nail in down here. And I am, I'm, I'm two nails away from this project being done. I'm like, this is fantastic. This went, this went pretty well, right? This went great. And so I, I'm getting the second to last nail in. I get it started, you know, because I don't want to smash my fingies. Say. And, and I, I get it started, and I, I hit some resistance. And I'm thinking, oh, it's just got to be a tough tough spot in the wall, right? Got to be a tough part in the, in the wood. And so I hit that nail as hard as I possibly could, and I hear this, bing, and I go, oh, poop, I just hit the gas line because the stove is on the other side of this wall. Now, all of a sudden, my mind goes into extreme panic, like, we got to get out. I just blew up the neighbors. This is going to be a really bad thing. We're not going to make very good impressions with our neighbors here. And so all of a sudden, I see water pouring out of, of this 
pipe that I hit, and I'm thinking, oh, good, it's just water. It's water! I got water pouring into my bathroom in places this is not supposed to be! I've got it all set up. I'm, I'm like, this is terrible. So I, you know how when you get a cut on your finger as a child, you kind of put some pressure on it. Everybody tells you to put some pressure on it. That doesn't heal it. Did you guys know that? But you put a little pressure on it, so that's what I did with the wall. Put a little pressure on it and just kind of lean into it a little bit. I'm grabbing towels that I can. I'm, you know, it's like a hand towel because we're in the bathroom, right? So I grab the hand towel and I like stick it up there and I'm yelling, Stephanie, I need you to come downstairs. She comes downstairs believing that my arm is cut off somehow by my screwdriver, which I wouldn't put it past me. And so she comes downstairs and I'm like, I just need you to put a little pressure here. And then I'm like, what to do, what to do, what to do. Right, this is kind of an emergency kind of thing. So I'm, I'm now looking through our downstairs, looking for the main water shutoff valve. I can't find it. Okay, I can't find it at all. I go into the mechanical closet because I'm like, should have had a V8. It's probably in there, right? So I go into the mechanical closet. I don't see it anywhere. So then there's we've got a closet right next to it. So I jump into that closet. No, it's not in there. I'm like, this pipe's heading upstairs. Maybe I can shut off the water from upstairs. You can't do that, by the way. This is dumb. Okay, like I said, I'm, I'm no Bob Vila. I'm like Bob the Builder's second cousin who doesn't have a TV show and he's not a cartoon because he's just not funny. And so I am now running through my house trying to shut off water. I'm turning knobs, like I'm turning off gas to stuff. I'm turning off something over here. I have no idea what's going on. So I start calling some friends, and you guys didn't answer your phones. <laughs> You're like, hey, Justin, you ever need anything? Just give me a call. Oh, if I ever need anything in case of an emergency? <laughs> Way to be there. Now, one of you guys did call me back, and I greatly appreciate it, but that was after the fact, and that was a $200 bill later, because I had to call a Yellow Pages guy. I had to call Roto-Rooter, and I'm like, hey, I put a nail in a pipe, and I got water pouring into my bathroom, and it's not supposed to be there. And so the lady's very calm on the other side. It's kind of like a 911 operator, right? Like, you got to be really calm when you're talking to crazy people, okay? And so she's, she's trying to, you know, talk me off the ledge, and, you know, she's like, it'll be all right. She's like, we'll get a technician out to you in about an hour. And I'm like, in about an hour, I'm going to have an indoor pool. Like, I just, what can I do from now? And she's like, I need you to go shut off your main water valve. And I'm like, why didn't I think of that? I can't find it anywhere. She's like, it's probably in your mechanical closet. I'm like, Right, so I'm on the phone, I'm walking through, and I'm like, it's not here, I'm telling you this right now. I open it up, and I see this right here up on our screen. That right there is, <laughs> that right there is a home inspector that knows what he's doing. <laughs> right there on the pipe, right on the knob that I'm supposed to turn, says main water shutoff valve. Thank you, Master Spec, for saving my life. I felt like a huge winner, <laughs> okay? I was like, oh, there it is. It was hiding. Uh, yeah, right. It was hiding right in front of my face. I, mm, thank, thank you. I'll see the technician soon. So I shut off the water. The guy comes. He's very gracious. I'm expecting him to be kind of a jerk because of the family I grew up in. Um, you know, like, oh, you put an L through the pipe. That was smart, you know? And it's like, well, I know it's not smart. Felt like a giant, giant winner. Now every time I'm in the bathroom, I think, and I'm reminded of that dreadful day that that, mail, that nail made me feel like an idiot, okay? And it makes me think about something that we, that we teach our kids, something that I, taught, I was taught as a young, at, a, at a young age, something that we teach our kids here in preschool all the way up through high school, something that we need to be reminded of this morning is this, is that our mistakes are a big part of our life. Making mistakes is a big part of our life. Whether you run past the shutoff valve or you're running past Jesus, mistakes are a big part of our lives. 
And in the series that we've been talking through, we've been talking about those mistakes. The mistakes of Judas, the mistakes of our sin and shame, the mistakes of the Pharisees, the mistakes of Nicodemus. And this week we're diving right back into it because until we understand our mistakes, we won't understand our need for Jesus. As we approach Easter Sunday, we've been diving into the stories that surround the cross. Stories that do not just show Jesus' journey to the cross, but also show others' journey to the cross. And we've talked about how the cross is life-changing, life-altering, and life-giving. And during this series, we've been getting our hearts ready as we approach our Savior while he approaches our cross. If you guys have your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 18 this morning. It's a lengthy scripture, so get comfy. John chapter 18, I'm going to read through like Romans, not really, but... John chapter 18, verse 28 is where we're going to start. If you're looking at the Bibles that are sitting in front of you, it's on page 905. Let me give you some background of what's happened so far leading up to our scripture this morning. See, our scripture this morning is Jesus' trial before Pilate. And right before this, Jesus has had his last supper with his disciples. And during the last supper, during the last time that he is with his best friends so far, he says to them, one of you is going to betray me ends up being Judas, who we talked about on week one of this series. So then Jesus and a few disciples leave the the, the dinner, and they go, and they head out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus sits and he prays, because Jesus knows what's about to come. He knows what is about to happen, and so he needs to spend some time with the Father. While in the garden, soldiers come, and they arrest Jesus. They come with chief priests, They come with Jewish soldiers and Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. They take him to the high priest's house, Caiaphas' house. They take him there, and there he is in front of the Sanhedrin, and they are trying to get Jesus to confess to something. Finally, they get what they think they're looking for, and they start leading him off to Pilate's headquarters, and that's where we pick up our scripture here in John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. We'll split it up a little bit here, too. Starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would have not delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you, you have customs that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. 
So what's happening here is we pause in our scripture for a second. What's happening? Jewish leaders and soldiers are leading Jesus to the governor's headquarters so that Pilate will order the death of Christ. Pilate then goes back inside to have a conversation with Jesus, but it's a different kind of conversation. You see, Pilate would have been used to aggressive criminals. They would have been angry that they were arrested. They might have been violent, but Jesus, Pilate comes in and finds Jesus to be calm, tired, and betrayed. So Pilate asks Jesus if he is king, and Jesus responds that his kingdom is not of this world. Again, Pilate would have been used to dealing with people that are trying to overthrow the Roman government. Terrorists that are coming in to try and take over the, the, the officials of what's happening in Rome. But again, we find Jesus calm, and his answers pose no threat to Rome if his kingdom isn't here. So Pilate probes him one more time with the question of, so you are a king, and Jesus replies back with, you say that I am a king. And then Jesus lays out his purpose to bear witness to the truth, implying that Jesus is the truth. Pilate goes back outside, shares his verdict with them, finding, I I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release a prisoner, and they end up trading Jesus for Barabbas. Let's go back into our scripture, chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him with a purple robe, They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Verse 10, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Jesus gets flogged in Pilate's effort to satisfy the Jewish leaders without having to crucify a man he finds no guilt in. But this does not satisfy the Jewish leaders. They won't be satisfied until death happens, until crucifixion happens. So Pilate comes back inside. He gives Jesus one more opportunity to explain the situation And Jesus talks to Pilate about the one authority, God. Pilate comes back out to the Jews and tries to release Jesus. And Well, the Jewish leaders push the political button. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And Pilate needed to keep the peace because because people were known to go around Pilate, straight to the Roman emperor. And he knew that if that happened, that that he could lose his job or lose his life. So he wanted to keep the peace here. So Pilate asks one more time, 
and they chant crucify him. There is one major theme that we need to understand as we walk through the scripture this morning, and it's this. Jesus is building his kingdom through the tragedy of the cross. Jesus is building his kingdom through the tragedy of the cross. And I want to break this down for us so that we all know what's happening here during the trial of Jesus. Jesus is continuing to build his kingdom here. He does not stop just because he's been arrested. He does not stop because all of his disciples have disappeared. But he continues because he knows that his, king, his kingdom will be continually built through the tragedy of the cross. And I believe there are three aspects of Jesus' kingdom that he addresses here as he has conversations with Pilate. The first one is that Jesus is building a kingdom of the heart. Chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might, be delivered, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world Jesus is essentially saying here that my kingdom, my kingdom is not in the amount of land that is owned and occupied by me, but my kingdom is built upon the hearts and lives of those that are surrendered to me. You see, the chief priests oppose the kingdom of the heart by building a kingdom of self, a fearful, prideful kingdom that affects their motivation, their decision-making, and their actions. And there's two key characteristics to pride that we see in our chief priests, and maybe, maybe you can resonate with them as well. There's two key characteristics of pride, and it's independence and rebellion. You see, our sinful nature leads us to desire independence, and we rebel at the thought of being under anyone else's control or authority. Psalm 10, verse 4 says this about pride. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. See, where we become so proud of ourselves, we have no more capacity to even think about God. See, until we recognize our sins, we won't recognize our need for Jesus. Pride is the barrier that keeps us from receiving strength in our weaknesses. Pride will destroy the heart as it destroys the relationship with God. And this is important. Pride will help us self-destruct as we self-promote. And Jesus knows this. He knows that a battle within the heart is happening over and over and over again. And so in Matthew chapter 22, when the, when the Pharisees are asking Jesus, they're trying to trap him, they're trying to scheme against him here. They ask him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies with this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not the forceful demand that would have generated a trial and conviction from Pilate. But Jesus' kingdom is an invitation of the heart that generates a change of perspective. Yeah, Jesus is building a kingdom of the heart. He is also building a kingdom of truth. Chapter 18, verse 37, Jesus is talking to Pilate. He says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. These words, to bear witness to truth, actually means that Jesus is coming to birth truth into humanity. That there has not been much truth that happens before Jesus and Jesus is the one and only truth. Truth about what? Truth about God, truth about ourselves, and truth about life. But the chief priests, 
They've built up lies for so long that they start to believe them as truth. The lie of rules over relationship. It's exactly what we talked about last week. Where we talked about it's not about the rules that you follow, but it's about who you follow. And the chief priests believed that they were the best people to follow. And in turn, this affects their truth in accordance to Jesus. John 8, 31 through 32, Jesus is saying to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, Jesus knows that just as much as we need a heart that is in love with God, we need truth to set us free. Jesus' truth sets us free from what? I think there's two major themes that Jesus' truth sets us free from. The first one is our lies. Lies entangle us. They trip us. They give us a false sense of reality. They manipulate authenticity. Lies will take us further away from the kingdom devoted to God and will take us to a kingdom devoted to self. Jesus' truth also, also frees us from our fear. Fear that entraps us. It causes us to pause, not out of reverence, but out of panic. Fear affects our decision-making abilities and will generate a false perspective that we have to be greater than our fear. We've talked about, as a church, this idea of having a kingdom perspective. A perspective that says that I am not of this world because my real citizenship is in heaven. You see, lies and fear come in and take our perspective They take our citizenship and they place them on mortal things rather than on the immortal God. Jesus comes to build a kingdom of the heart. He comes to build a kingdom of the truth so that we can stand on his truth, so that we can witness and follow the one and only truth. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He's continuing to build a kingdom with only one king. Chapter 19, verse 11 Jesus answers Pilate by saying, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus' last words before his journey with the cross is about one authority who is over all. His last words before he picks up his cross and walks with it, before he picks up our cross and walks with it, is about the one authority that sits over all. But the chief priests have taken authority into their own hands at this point. You see, they've been looking for a way to trap Jesus since day one. They have been building scheme after scheme to trap Jesus in his words. And they have taken authority into their own hands. So much as I read this this last week in a commentary that I was reading through, and this just blew my mind because I've never made this connection before. But even their verdict changes about Jesus. You see, when they are in the home of Caiaphas, and Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, they're trying to get Jesus to announce that he is the Son of God. Then they can stake the claim that Jesus is speaking blasphemy. And so they leave the house speaking that 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 is what they're going to tell, that's what they're going to tell Pilate, is that Jesus was, was, was blasphemous. But on the way there, somehow they realize Pilate's not going to care about that. He's not going to care if somebody's been speaking ill about our God. So they change the verdict to rebellion and political revolt. They give Jesus the title of king. 
but not out of reverence, but out of panic. You see, Jesus wants Pilate to know that God is the only authority that matters and that Jesus has been given the role of king over God's kingdom. And Jesus is not taking on Pilate's term of kingship because he would not take on a worldly interpretation of what it means to be a king. And I think it's important for us to realize as we are approaching the cross that we realize that Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is a king taking his throne, transforming death into life, transforming trial into triumph, transforming suffering into salvation for all. You see, the darkness of the hour does not deter from the glory of the hour. And just because Jesus was arrested doesn't mean that he stops building his kingdom. No, Jesus Jesus is building his kingdom through the tragedy of the cross. And I want to talk about that for a second because I think, I think we have an unfair, an unfair vision of what it means to be at the tragedy of the cross. The tragedy of the cross is not in the death of the Savior, but the life of those blinded by their own darkness. The tragedy of the cross lives here when chief priests are willing to trade Jesus for Barabbas and God for Caesar. Do you remember these verses? Chapter 18, 38. Pilate comes out and says, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Chapter 19, verse 5. Again, the chief priest cried out, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. And Pilate gives them another way out again. He says, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. See, in the moment of desperately wanting their own way, they chose to honor Caesar above God himself. In the moment of wanting to look strong, they chose the weaker route to take. And in the moment of selfish ambition and vain conceit, they chose to neglect the very things they believe they're standing up for. You see, in essence, they don't don't trade Jesus for Barabbas. They don't trade God for Caesar, but they trade Jesus and God for themselves. So I now ask you, because the tragedy of the cross is still happening now just as much as it was with the chief priests, I ask us, what do we trade Jesus for? Maybe a better question is, is who do we trade Jesus for? And as I was sitting in my office this week having those questions up on my whiteboard, I'm sitting there just thinking about it, and I'm going, why? Why do we trade Jesus for? You see, we trade Jesus for the same reason the chief priest traded him, because he threatens the power that we believe we have over our own lives. We will often show a greater commitment to lesser things. We are quick to show loyalty to the social norm, politically correctness, and stances that scare us, but we become hesitant when the higher calling of God comes and whispers in our ear. I know for me, I... (laughs) I try and take the authority back into my hands. Because when I hear God whispering in my ear, I ask selfish questions of going, how do I really know that's God? How do I really know that this is God's will for my life? And I start to put the, put the judgment seat back, back where I am. When in reality, if I spent any time with God, I would know two things. One, God shows us the next step, not the whole plan. And two, I would know what God's voice sounded like. 
but we are much quicker to jump on a bandwagon if Jesus isn't on it. Our loyalties lie within ourselves first. Speaking for myself, my loyalties lie within myself first, and I put my trust in things smaller than Jesus before I'll trust the man who hung on a tree for me. And I think it's a little ironic. In the beginning stages of chapter 18, the church as a whole, not just Windsor Road, but the church as a whole, Christians as a whole, we get down on Peter a little bit. Peter is denying Jesus three times leading up to the cross. He's denying him three times, kind of in his biggest moment of need, and we stand there and we, we criticize Peter. Peter, what are you doing? Jesus needs you now more than ever. What are you doing? This is the same man who washed your disgusting feet. This is the same man that allowed you to walk on water. What are you doing abandoning him? But in reality, if we only denied Jesus three times in a sitting, that would be a pretty good percentage for us, right? The tragedy of the cross is that we become more willing to kill Jesus than we are to kill our own evil, selfish, and sinful desires that consume our hearts and build up pride. We would rather bury Jesus than bury our own personal agendas. The chief priests were so ingrained in their own righteousness that they failed to remember their opportunity to be human and be wrong. See, we quickly let the lies that we tell ourselves become the truth that we live by. Instead of being nothing without Jesus, we make ourselves everything that we think we need. We build ourselves up to be unbreakable. The tragedy of the cross is not in the death of the Savior, but is in the life of those that are blinded by their own darkness. The tragedy of the cross is also the tragedy of today. See, Jesus should be our first response, not our last resort. Too often, our first response is in regards to ourselves, not Christ. When something happens in our life, when we have some sin and we have some shame that we have built up in our lives, we do three things. We conceal, we try and repair it ourselves, and we hide. But Jesus tells us that we should confess, that we should repent, and we should open up our lives to him. How dare we look weak in front of anyone else as we open up and allow Jesus to work in and through us. The real tragedy is, is that we like to play the hero in our own story. We like to be the hero in our own story. We like to raise our own victory flag. We like to be that hero, but the problem is, is that our stories wouldn't need a hero if it wasn't for our missteps, our mistakes, and our missed opportunities. But that's exactly why Jesus came. This is exactly why Jesus died. This is exactly why he took our place because we need a hero who is greater than we are. Our world, us included, needs the help and hope that only Jesus can offer. We were rescued to be rescuers. We have been found so that we can find others and the king has come and served us so we know how to serve others. Yeah, Jesus is building his kingdom through the tragedy of the cross. But the tragedy happens so that the victory can happen. The disaster happens so that God's glory can be shown through his only son, Jesus. The chaos happens so that Jesus can come and save us from ourselves. Jesus died for all to see. Our series has been called Jesus Died For. We've talked about Jesus died for Judas. Jesus died for our shame. Jesus died for the legalist inside of us. 
But Jesus died for us all to see. Not just so that we would see him on the cross, but so that we would see our desperate need for him. To see that without him we have nothing. To see that Jesus' love repairs our broken hearts, remedies our mutilated truth, and corrects our focus so that we see only one king. Yeah, Jesus died for all to see. Until we fully see our mistakes, our sins, and our shame, we won't fully see our need for Jesus. So my question is, is do we see him? Do we see Jesus? Not just do we see him, do we see our need for him? This cross is a reminder that Jesus died for all to see. My prayer is that Jesus would give us vision. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending your son Jesus in our place for giving him our cross to carry for giving him our sins to put upon his shoulders God thank you for your grace and your mercy your unlimited grace because we have unlimited sins God thank you for sending Jesus so that we may see God give us clear vision of you give us clear vision of ourselves and help us to see our need for your son who died on a tree for us so that we might spend eternal life with you God eliminate the pride from our hearts Eliminate the lies and the fear. God, eliminate, eliminate the falsehood of our own authority. God, may we rest in your victory on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. During this time, we've got a time of worship that's going to happen. There are communion stations set up throughout the room. And Jesus invites you to his table whether you have sin consuming your hearts, whether you have sin that you are trying to hide, Jesus invites you to his table. He invites you to new life. He invites you to be in communion with him together. So the band's gonna play a couple of songs and we want you to worship wherever you feel comfortable worshiping. If that's here on these steps, do that. If you need to kneel where you are, do that. Spend time with the Lord now as we worship. We thank him for his sacrifice for us. Amen.